I'm flying from Detroit to New York City. I'm a rather comfortable flyer. I don't pay attention when I fly. I arrived at the Detroit airport, took the bus in, dropped off the terminal, checked the luggage, got onto the concourse, got down to the end of the concourse. I am flying out of gate 23. But it just so happens that gate 22, 23, 24, 25, 26 are all in the same area. I'm not paying attention. I'm actually sitting there studying. Everybody else is wondering, when are you going to call us? When can we board the plane? I really don't care. All of a sudden, I hear that now the plane for New York City is boarding. And I just throw my stuff back in my briefcase, get up, and I get in line. Hand the uh, coupon to the woman that's taking it. She scans it. She puts me into the plane. I get into the plane. I'm supposed to be sitting in row 22, seat C, right in the aisle. There's somebody in my seat. I decide it's not a good thing to have an actual battle in the plane, so I just sit somewhere else. It's no big deal. And then the announcements begin to come on. You know, the, the announcements that nobody really listens to. Uh, for instance, if anybody listened to this, in the event of a water landing, you would think that's a crash. But they never call it a crash. And then, people just, and then they say, in the event that we lose cabin pressure, the oxygen mask will drop out of the compartment above you and kindly put that on your face. Now, they don't tell you that way in case we do crash. You will have about two minutes to enjoy the 30,000-foot fall before you have a water landing. All of a sudden, I, I hear the captain come on, and he must be confused because this is what he says. Well, folks, it's good to have you here today, and uh, the weather in White Plains, New York, is warm and sunny. And I'm, I'm actually thinking, can you believe it? The guy has no clue as to where we are flying to today. I go back to reading, and then I hear him come back again, and he says, and our flight today will take approximately one hour and 25 minutes from here in the beautiful city of Detroit, which was a lie. If you've ever been to Detroit, it's not a beautiful city. We will fly from Detroit to White Plains, New York, and now I'm a little concerned because now I'm wondering, could it possibly be, I doubt it, but could it possibly be that I have made a mistake that I somehow have gotten onto the wrong plane? And so I asked the guy next to me, I said, can you believe it? The guy doesn't know where we're flying to. And he looks at me like my mother used to look at me. You know, that sort of look when she's just going. And I, all of a sudden I realize I am on the wrong plane. This is bad. They have already closed the door to the plane, and I realize that my future is about to be affected because I'm on the wrong plane. And I do what any normal person would do. I get up and I run to the flight attendant, and I said, I've got to get off the plane. And she looks at me, she says, I'm sorry, sir, the door is closed. The jetway's been, I said, no, no, you don't understand. I need to get off the plane. I have a meeting in New York City in four hours. I cannot go to White Plains, New York. And she says, okay, oh, okay. so they pull the jetway back. I get off the plane. You see, all of a sudden, when I understood the future, it determined what my actions were going to be that day. You've been talking about the future You've been talking about the rapture, and because you understand the rapture, it ought to cause you to do certain things today. And when you talk about the tribulation period and understand that, it ought to cause you to do certain things today. Today, we're going to talk about two components in the future. The Bema Seat Judgment of Christ, 
and the great white throne judgment. The Bema Seed has to do with Christ followers, that there is a judgment coming your way. Now, it's probably not what you think. We're going to talk about that today. And then the great white throne judgment is designed for those individuals to stand before Christ who decided, I do not want to follow him. Those are the two components that we'll talk about today. If you'd pull out your message handout with me this morning and follow along. As we talked this morning about the Bema Seat and the great white throne judgment, number one in your notes is simply this. When you understand the Bema Seat judgment, when you understand the Bema Seat judgment, you will realize the importance of using your life to serve others, to serve others. Open your copy of the scriptures this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll look at verses 6 through 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verses 6 through 10. Here's the context, the background. The Apostle Paul has been talking about death and about heaven. And now he comes to verse 6 in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and notice the word therefore. So he's saying, in light of the fact that we will all die, in light of the fact that those of us who are Christ followers will spend an eternity with Christ in heaven, therefore, we are always confident, and we know that as long as we are at home in the body, in this physical body that we have, as long as we are alive upon the earth, we are away from the Lord. We are not with him in heaven. We live by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. In other words, he's saying, look, I get it. I get the picture. I, if I had a choice to make today, I would rather be dead away from this body and in heaven with Christ. Now, I don't know about you. I'm not really fearful about being dead, but getting there is another issue. You ever been there? He says, look, I, I would much rather be with Christ in heaven. Notice what he says next in verse 9. So we make it our goal. We make it our goal to please him, to please Christ, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we, Christ followers, must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Look back at verse 9 with me. It says this. We make it our goal. It is our ambition. It is our mission in life. We make it our goal to please him. That's a very interesting phrase, that phrase to please him. It has the idea of continually desiring to, to please him. It is a character trait that Christ followers ought to have. It's an idea of recognizing that he is the master, that you are not, that you and I as Christ followers are simply the follower. I don't know about you, but sometimes in my life I think, you know what? When there's a decision to be made, God has a vote, I have a vote, and I get to break all ties. That is totally non-biblical thinking. God says, I'm the master of your life. Will you follow after me? Will you seek to please me? And at first glance, it, it appears that he's talking about avoiding sinful actions. But as you and I begin to understand the rest of the scriptures, we recognize that that cannot be true for all of your sin if, in fact, you're a Christ follower, has been wiped out. As a matter of fact, it says in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 12 this. It says, now I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiving on account of me. They have been forgiven. They're wiped out. It's a banking term. In other words, he says, paid in full. There's no debt left. Paid in full. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation 
For those who are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. In other words, there will not be a judgment for those of you that are Christ followers that someday you will stand before him and he will remind you of everything that you have done, a sinful attitude, a sinful action. All of those sins have been taken care of. That's not. That's not what the Bema seat is all about. So the question then is, well, what will you and I be judged in regards to? If you were in Corinth, that term Bemacy would have instantly given you a picture. Because in the city of Corinth, there was every two years Olympic-type games known as the Ithmian Games. And what would happen, there would be an individual who would be overseeing the games, and he would sit on the Bema seat. And those who participated in the games, and those who won at their particular event, they would walk by the Bema seat, and they would be quote-unquote judged. They would be rewarded for their efforts. And that is what Christ is saying to you and saying to me through the pen of the Apostle Paul. He says, there will be a time. There will be a time when you will be rewarded. But the question is, what will you be rewarded for? What do you have to do in order to be rewarded? Notice what verse 10 says. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Things done in the body, whether good or bad. Again, not talking about sinful attitudes or sinful actions, but what he's really talking about is what did you do while you were here to serve Christ? The Apostle Paul, when he wrote to Timothy in the last book that he will ever write, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 says this, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. My life is a sacrifice. And the time has come for my departure. I am ready to die. And then he says something that you and I ought to be able to say. He says in verse 7, For I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. He's referring to his actions of serving Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 is a very interesting passage of Scripture. Here's what it says. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are Christ's workmanship, his special creation. We are a precious art piece, and he has created you to do good works, acts of service. I don't know about you, but uh, I, how many of you are not morning people? Let me just see your hands. Be proud about that. You're just not a morning person. You wish church started about three in the afternoon. Because, you know, it just takes a while to get rolling. And you wake up in the morning, and most likely your first thought when you enter into the bathroom and you look at yourself is not like, wow, today's the day I get to serve people. That's just not normal. It's just not what we do. You wake up and you think, wow, what a day. I get to go to church today. I can hardly wait to serve today. We don't do that. It is incredibly abnormal for you and for me, to put others ahead of ourselves. It is incredibly supernatural. It is a God thing when you and I decide that we will serve him by serving other people. Serving people. Now, in the American church, what we've decided to do is we have, we have honed down serving to the idea that, hey, give me an hour and a half once a week. Help on Sunday morning, help on Sunday night, lead a small group, do this, do that. It's an hour and a half, I'm done. That's not the concept. The concept is every moment of your life, you and I are to be alert and awake to the opportunities that God gives to you and to me to serve him by serving 
other individuals. The Twelve disciples constantly argued back and forth about who would be the greatest. Remember that? And he said the greatest among you would be those who serve others. The first shall be last. Nobody goes to a line and says, you know, I hope I get to be in the back today. Everybody wants to be in the front of the line except in church. Nobody wants to sit in the front. You and I have got to develop a mindset that says, I will serve other people because that's what God has called me to do. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 7. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human kindness. Taking the very nature of a servant. You know, in our culture today, the word servant is an okay word. It's an acceptable word. Really, that word servant is the word slave. Taking the actions, having the attitude of a slave, that's what you and I are called to do. Surrendering our lives to him and say, God, what do we do today? What do you want to do through my life today? Yet you and I tend to live in a culture that is rather self-absorbed. If you and I live self-absorbed lives, which we all naturally drift toward, there will not be a lot of significance in our lives, and there certainly won't be much reward because at the Bema seat, you and I will be rewarded for what we do in serving him. It's so easy to miss those opportunities. In order to take those opportunities, you and I will need to lead a selfless life, putting others ahead of ourselves. There are opportunities that you and I have every moment of every day to step up and to serve, to see the needs around us. You know, have you ever thought, you know, our church ought to have a ministry too and then fill in the blank. Have you ever thought about that? A lot of times people come to me as the pastor and say, you know, Ed, we ought to have this. And I say, well, as a matter of fact, we do have that. Oh, really? I didn't know that. What's the program? Well, the program is you. You see, if you see a need, God says, guess what? You're the one I want to use to meet that particular need. It's a 24-7, 365 issue. But there's also passions that God lays upon our hearts, and God calls each one of us here at Northwest to be an active part of the ministry by ministering to others within the body of Christ. And I wonder this morning what it is that you do to make this ministry a ministry that impacts the lives of others. And you might say, I don't bring a lot to the table. Well, good, because sometimes if you think you bring a lot to the table, you will try to perform based upon your own ability. And God says, look, it's not about you. It's about me using you. So if you say, I don't have a lot of ability, he says, that's okay, I'll give you power. You say, I'm not a very loving person. He says, I will change your heart. And so I ask you this morning, do you really have a mindset of a servant? Because you and I, at the end, following the tribulation period, you and I will be judged, will be given rewards based upon how we have served him. It really matters. And so by understanding the future, it ought to affect your actions and my actions. True stories told following World War II. In a city in France, people who were Christ followers went to their church and they found that their church had been bombed during the war. And they noticed that the, the roof was no longer there and beams had fallen down and most of the windows were, were blasted out. But they had a statue of Christ. And, and it was still standing, and they were amazed. It was a statue of Christ that, that he was reaching his hands out like this. The only thing that was wrong with the statue is both hands had been knocked off when a beam fell down. 
And they contacted a sculptor in the town, and they said, could you fix that? And he said, well, as a matter of fact, I would. And as a matter of fact, I will fix it for free. They got together as a congregation, and they decided that they wouldn't fix the statue. Because someone said, you know, maybe it's a good picture of us, that you and I are to be the hands of Christ. We're the ones that are to serve. And I ask you this morning, this last week, have you looked for opportunities to serve? Or have you found yourself, like I so often do, being consumed with issues in my own life, being consumed with busyness that keeps me from doing what God really desires for me to do? You see, when you understand the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, you will desire to serve him because of who he is. Here's the second thought. Number two in your notes, when you understand the great white throne judgment, you will praise God for his loving mercy and grace and share it with those in your sphere of influence. You will praise God for his mercy and grace and share it with those in your sphere of influence. Look at Revelation chapter 20, last book in the New Testament, Revelation chapter 20. Verses 11 through 15. It says this. Keep in mind that this passage happens after the rapture, after the tribulation period, after the 1,000-year reign of Christ, after Satan has been cast into the lake of fire. John, the apostle, says this. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated upon it, The earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead, referring to the dead bodies that were in it, and death, referring to the grave, and Hades, referring to hell, gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It is the great white throne judgment. It's called great because of its vastness. Every individual who's ever lived upon the earth, who's not a Christ follower, who has not bowed down before him and said, yes, I will follow after you, will be judged based upon what they have done and will find themselves severely wanting. Christ will be the one who will be seated upon that particular throne. It says in verse 11, the earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. The earth at a point in time in the future will cease to exist. If you want more information about that, you can find it in 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 will help you to understand exactly what that will look like. And then it says in verse 12 this. It says, and I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. The books have within them all of the actions, the actions and the attitudes of individuals, and God will not grade on a curve. You see, it is the great white throne judgment, white referring to purity. The one that sits upon the throne is pure and has an exacting judgment. Then it says in the second portion of verse 12 this, Another book was opened, which is the book of life, which is the book of life. Then it says the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in these books. You might recall that Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 says this, the wages of sin is death. If you have sinned, what you have earned is death, eternal separation from God. 
good works certainly will not get you into heaven. Sinful actions will send you to hell. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 and 9 says this, For it is by grace, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and that is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Look at verse 13. It says, The sea gave up the dead that were in it, referring to the bodies. Why does he use the word sea? Probably because when you and I think about dead bodies being resurrected, if you drown in the sea, in the ocean, that's going to be incredibly difficult. And so he says, even that, I will bring those bodies back and unite them with the souls that have been spending time in the temporary hell known as Hades. He says, I will bring them back. It says, in death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 says this, just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. There is a judgment coming for every individual that has decided not to follow after Jesus. Look at verse 14. It says, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. There's a lot of confusion in regards to what that really means. Here's the concept. If an individual dies today who is not a Christ follower, they go to hell, commonly referred to in the New Testament as Hades. It is the temporary, horrible place of eternal punishment that ultimately everyone in hell will be cast into the lake of fire. There's a vivid picture because the lake of fire, which everyone who's not a Christ follower eventually gets cast into, the Greek word there is the word Gehenna, which refers to a valley which is southwest of Jerusalem. Anyone that was listening to John as he's writing this and speaking this, anyone that listened to Jesus when he referred to Gehenna would have instantly known what it was because in Jesus' day, it was a garbage dump southwest of the city of Jerusalem that was constantly burning to burn the garbage. A foul odor came off of it. Maggots infested everything around it. And very often criminals who were killed would be cast into that garbage pit, which was known as Gehenna, the lake of fire. So it is a tremendous word picture that every individual would have understood when they heard Jesus refer to Gehenna or when they read about John saying the lake of fire. That it says in verse 15 this, if anyone's name was not found, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The book of life is a very interesting concept. It's a book that's like a registry. Every city in Jesus' day would have a registry. If your name was in the registry in the book for that particular city, it was a sign that you belonged there. And John is saying in the same way, there is the book of life, which refers to those individuals that are a part of following Jesus, and their ultimate place of life will be in heaven. They belong there. He says, if anyone's name was not thrown in the book of life, they would be thrown into the lake of fire. So what does that do for you when you understand that there is a judgment coming for every individual in the world, your neighbors, your friends, your family, who do not understand who Jesus Christ is? What does that do to you? It ought to do a couple things. It ought to remind you of God's mercy for you, God's love for you, and God's grace for you. 
Here's what it says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 4 and 5. But because of his great love, referring to God, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. He totally transformed us. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. I've been a Christ follower since 1973. I'm not nearly as old as Brian wants to think I am, but 1973, I came to know Christ. And at that point in my life, I began to understand God's grace and his mercy. I couldn't do anything. I could never be good enough to have a relationship with him. But something happens when you've been following Jesus for a long time. You tend to forget. You tend to forget how much God really loves you and what he's done for you. Do you recognize today that Jesus the Christ died for you? Not just physical death, but but he took your hell upon himself and was separated from his father for you. That's how much he loved you. He loved you in a way that no one else has ever, ever loved you. God's mercy, God's grace, and his love for you. That ought to cause you to worship him as the true and living God, but also ought to cause you to want others, those around you, to know who he is. It is said by Jesus, Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, it says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who were lost. You and I are to be seekers. We're to be looking for people who desperately need to come to understand who he is. First John chapter 2 and verse 6 says this, Whoever claims to be in Christ must walk as he walked. You and I need to have the attitude that Jesus had in regards to individuals who do not know him. We need to build relationships with him. When people in church begin to talk about the word evangelism, it causes many of us to get a dry mouth and sweaty palms. That's because we really have a misunderstanding about what evangelism really is. Evangelism is simply saying, I love you enough that I will build a relationship with you. I will begin to look for opportunities to share with you what God is doing in my life, and then at the appropriate time, I will share with you who God is and what he could do in your life. Can I ask you a question this morning? When's the last time that you intentionally built a relationship with someone who doesn't know Jesus with the idea of beginning to share with them who God is and what he's done in your life and what he ultimately could do in their life? Every one of us who are Christ followers need to cultivate relationships, plant seeds, and look for opportunities to reap in individuals' lives. We need to have the passion in our hearts the Apostle Paul had for those within his sphere of influence. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 1, he says this, Brothers, my heart's desire, my heart's passion and prayer to God is for the Israelites that they may be saved. Could you say that about yourself? My passion is that those that I work with who don't know Christ, those in my neighborhood who don't know Christ, those in my extended family who don't know Christ, my passion is to see them come to know who Jesus really is so they can have what I have, so they can understand God's love and his mercy and his grace. But you know what hinders us from doing that? Two things. Fear and busyness. Fear and busyness. We're too busy, my friends. That means we simply need to reprioritize our lives. Lost people really matter. Fear, you can wipe that out by saying, you know what? No one's ever come to Christ because someone spoke the gospel so clearly and concisely to them that the person fell upon their knees and said, I get it now. When you share the good news of who Jesus Christ really is, it's a supernatural transaction. God wants to use you in an amazing way. It is easy for us to waste our lives. Sometimes we waste a day here, a day there, and you go at the end of the day, you go, you know, I really didn't do anything today. But it's also easy to waste your life. Steve Jobs, the founder 
of the Apple Corporation. Early on in that enterprise, which would become a mega movement, he realized that he needed to find someone who was a great executive, someone who was the leader, someone who was a manager, and he needed to get them to oversee the Apple Corporation. He found that there was an individual named John Scully who worked for the Pepsi-Cola Corporation. He was the vice president of operations for Pepsi-Cola. And he set up a meeting, brought him into New York City, and he wined and dined him. And he tried to convince him that he needed to come and work with Apple. But John Scully looked at him like, are you kidding me? I don't want to move to New York City. I don't want to do that. This whole computer thing, I doubt if it's really going to make it. Soda, Pepsi, that, that, that's going to always be around. I got job security there. And Steve Jobs took him up into a high-rise apartment that overlooks Central Park. If you've ever been to New York City, it is one of the greatest places in New York. And he he says, look out there. Look at all of those people. We're going to impact those people. Still, John Scully wasn't moved. And finally, in a moment of desperation, Steve Jobs looked at him and he said this. Are you going to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water? Or do you want a chance to impact the world? That took the wind out of John Scully's sails. And all of a sudden he realized, I'm selling sugared water. I have an opportunity to impact the world. I ask you today, when it comes to impacting lost people, are you just too busy selling sugared water? Or do you want a chance to impact the world one life at a time? You see, when you understand the beam of seat judgment of Christ, you'll want to serve him. When you understand the great white throne, you'll want to praise him and worship him because he's a loving God, a grace-giving God, a mercy-giving God. But you'll also want to impact the lives of lost people. There are empty seats in here. Have you noticed? That's a great thing. You see, how's that a great thing? Because every time you come here, these empty seats ought to remind you of who it is that God wants to sit in those seats. You've reached the 200 or 300 level of the church, and, and you can go, you know what, now we can coast. It's good. We're, we've made it. We're a church. It's perfect. And God says, that's great, but I want one more person. And when you get that one more person, God says, that's really great, but I want one more person. Because as long as there are lost people around here who desperately need to understand who Jesus is, you ought to be on a mission, a mission to impact the lives of people. Don't waste your life selling sugared water.